Good morning. There we go. I did turn it on. Good morning, Haynes Creek. It's good to be worshiping with you today. As Johnny mentioned, my name is Travis. If it is your first time here, just want to say a special welcome to you. We are thrilled and excited that you are here worshiping with us as our guest today. And uh, we would love a chance just to, to show how much we appreciate you. So I would encourage you, before you head on, go, as you go straight out back into the hallway, we have our welcome table right there. If you don't mind stopping by that table before you head home, we have a free gift uh, we'd love to put in your hands today. Again, just as a way to show our appreciation. And then we've got these little welcome cards right there on the table as well. If you wouldn't mind filling one of those out, leave it on the table. Those come back to me and it just gives me a chance to reach out with a phone call or an email. It just to say thank you and let you know how much we, we truly do appreciate you being here. So if you could do me that favor, I would really appreciate that. And uh, church, we are we are beginning a new series today. We've been talking about it for the last couple of weeks. We are beginning a new series that we're calling Finding Joy, where we're going to be walking verse by verse through the New Testament book of Philippians. So I'm really excited to dig into this with you. And, and as we, we get started, um, I, I don't know what, what it is, uh, but I feel like, and this is probably not accurate, it probably just feels this way, but if there is something that is going to kind of go haywire with my family, it is going to happen on a Sunday morning where, where I'm not home with my wife and kids to help out. Because I get here early, I, I like to get here early, go over my sermon, spend some time in prayer, just preparing for the morning, helping get things set up as well. So I'm not home on Sunday morning. So that means my wife and my three kids are there and she's corralling them for breakfast, getting them ready to come to church. And, and last Sunday, of course, something something goes wrong. And, and I get a call and my wife tells me, what's wrong with our deep freezer? I was like, what are you talking about? It was working fine the last time I saw that thing. And she's like, nope, not working anymore. And so we've had this, uh, we've had this deep freeze. Uh, it's a small little thing. It's probably like, you know, not much bigger than this right here. But we've had it for several years. Like we're talking like 10 plus years. And this is this thing has come with us through like several moves. And we're talking like, this is the fourth move that we've brought our deep freeze along with us. And it's it's been great. Like it's been awesome. We put, uh, so my, my wife's family's in Texas. They raise cows. So they give us like a bunch of ground beef throughout the year. So I get stored in our deep freeze along with like other uh, meats and things like that, that we, we just kind of keep in there. So it's been great. I mean, it's been very, very useful for us. And, and sure enough, last week on, on Sunday, it, it just decides to stop working. Like for no reason, it just decides to stop working. My wife goes down there to like pull some chicken out for us to cook that night. And she's like, nothing's, <laughs> like it, it's completely out. And man, I, I don't know what it is, but we've been in this house for a couple of months and we've just had the worst uh, luck with our appliances. So like all the appliances that the owner <laughs> left us there have all stopped working. So we had to replace all of those. And now we've had to replace our deep freeze. I was like, really? Uh, this thing has been like so faithful and is like continued to work. And now here this is out. So last Sunday we had to pull everything out when my wife did again. I was here. She was home doing all of this by herself. She had to pull all this stuff out, put it upstairs in our, our regular fridge and freezer. And then I had to go buy a new deep freeze. So uh, in our deep freeze, I tell you all this to, to get to this. Uh, in our deep freeze, we had these like, you know, little, uh, like little ice cream cone things from Trader Joe's. They're like, you know, two inches big. The kids love them. So it's just a little treat to give our kids and, and those melted, like those were gone. Like those had to get thrown in the trash. We also had some popsicles in there that our kids like to have after school and things like that. Those melted too, gone, had to throw those away. So Monday comes and uh, my daughter, she's uh, at home with me while I'm working and I put her down for nap and then she wakes up from nap. And, and I don't know if she was just having a dream about ice cream. Cause as soon as she woke up, she's like, I want an ice cream cone. So like, she never does that. I mean, we give our kids ice cream. It's not like we, we withhold that from them. They, they get ice cream when, when you know, it, it, it makes sense. And, uh, but she never wakes up from nap just like, I want this. So I had to tell her, like, okay, well, those melted yesterday, so they're gone. We had to throw those away. Sorry, we don't have any. So, well, I want a popsicle. 
I'm like, where is this coming from? What do you mean you want a popsicle? I'm like, well, those melted too, sweetie. I, we don't have it. And for whatever reason, my, my two-year-old daughter uh, has decided that her main form of communication is just going to be yelling. Like, she just yells. Like, I don't know. She's the first of our three kids that just yells all the time. I have no idea. Maybe it's because she's got two older uh, siblings, a brother and sister, where she, you know, kind of gets forgotten a little bit. So she's got to make her presence known. Like, when our kids are at dinner sharing about their day, when they're done, she's like, me turn, my turn, me turn talk, me turn talk. I'm like, okay, tell us about your day, Milo. What's going on? Scream something. I don't know. But she just has decided that her main form of communication is yelling. So when I tell her we don't have any ice cream, we don't have any popsicles, she is just like, I want an ice cream cone. I want a popsicle. I was like, where is this coming from? Like, this is like 30 seconds after she gets up from nap and she's just throwing this giant fit and just screaming and yelling and all that. And I was just like, whoa. So I got her calmed down. We figured it out. But I tell you that to say that I think sometimes when we come to the, the letters of Paul, especially in the New Testament, Man, he can just be so upfront in your face. I mean, you look at some of his letters where they're just like so heavy, so direct. And that's what I love about Paul is, is like he doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't cut corners. Like he is going to be upfront, tell you the truth no matter what, right? So we have these, these deep theological letters like Romans and Ephesians where he is just like digging deep. Or, or he's like confronting some major issues in the church in places like Galatians and First and Second Corinthians where you're just like, whoa, what, what is going on here? So we—, we I, at least for me, when I think of Paul and his ministry and his letters, like my mind tends to go there where he is just blunt and in your face and delivering the hard truth and not holding back. But when we come to Philippians, he's a little bit more gentle, right? He's not like my two-year-old yelling at me for an ice cream cone. He's a little bit more, more gentle. Like Philippians, this is why I love it. Philippians adds a, a different flavor to some of Paul's other writings. And we, we get this sense when we start to read Philippians, it's a short little letter in the New Testament, but, but it's packed with such deep truth. But he does it in, in kind of a, a more subtle, gentle way than some of his other writing. And you see how, how Paul's heart for his people and his churches really comes out in Philippians. He's got this deep love and affection for the Philippian people, and it comes out in this letter. So I, I, I love the, the book of Philippians. And again, we're starting that today, walking verse by verse through this, through this New Testament letter um, of Philippians. And, and so why, why of all the letters, why, why would we pick this? Well, um, just trusting the Holy Spirit that he's guiding and leading this. But, but Philippians does, it, it speaks to real life issues that, that we have uh, constantly throughout our lives. Like it speaks to these, these regular struggles and desires that we all have at times, right? It speaks to uh, peace and joy, and gratitude, and, and contentment, and satisfaction. And it tells us where to find those things. It speaks to, to real-life issues like relationships, and, and pressure, and, and temptation from the culture to walk away from Jesus and pursue other things. Like, Paul addresses all of these things in Philippians. So it's, it's only four chapters, right? It's one of, one of the shorter letters of Paul that we have in the New Testament, but it's, it's packed with so much truth. And church, we're going we're gonna to dig into this book over the next several weeks. So, so don't expect a, a four-week or a six-week series. We are going to walk slowly through this letter. And we're going to try to dig as much as we can out of this and spend our time hanging out in these incredibly important topics that, and truths that Paul touches on here in this letter. So uh, I hope you're excited. I'm excited uh, to dig into this today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the, the New Testament book of Philippians. It's situated in between Ephesians and Colossians. Uh, that's where Philippians is. So Philippians chapter 1, if you have your Bible, awesome. If, if you don't, you can certainly follow along on the screen 
right here. Also, we have Bibles at our table. If you don't own a Bible, please, please take one of those home with you. That, that is our gift to you. Please take that. Um, but Philippians, we're going to get started here in the opening verses. So Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 1, it says this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Okay, let's pause right there and just let's do, let's just do a little bit of background, a little bit of overview of what's going on when we come to the New Testament book of Philippians. It's important to know kind of the historical context, who's writing, why they're writing, what's kind of going on, what's being addressed in the letter. So let's kind of do a, a high-level overview here. So Philippians is a letter written by Paul. We see it right here at the beginning. Paul, uh, this is a common greeting at the time for letters. You would list your name first rather than, than at the end like we kind of do with our letters and emails and things like that today. So so he starts out, hey, this is me, Paul, writing to you. So Paul is, is writing, and, and remember who Paul is, right? He's this, this apostle. He's a missionary. I mean, we see his mission work being done and, and uh, recorded throughout the book of Acts. And, and Paul, throughout his time as a missionary, helped plant several churches all throughout modern-day Turkey and Asia Minor and Greece and all that. So Paul was, was all over the place and planting churches everywhere he went. And, and he wrote many letters to these churches. We have many of them recorded and preserved in our New Testament. In fact, out of the the 27 New Testament books, 13 of those are letters written by Paul, whether to churches or individuals. So, So Paul had this incredibly extensive, powerful ministry. And he also includes Timothy in there. We're going to learn more about Timothy as we go along in the book of Philippians. But, but Paul mentions Timothy that he's with him. Now, maybe Timothy is a co-author. He helped in some way. We're not really sure. But, but Timothy was like a mentee of Paul and just uh, came along with Paul with all of his missionary work, all of his ministry, really learned from him. They, they were truly partners in ministry and deep friends uh, were Paul and, and Timothy here. And we see Timothy, if you want to go back and kind of read his beginnings and stories, uh, their meeting and how Timothy came to Christ and came into ministry. That's recorded in Acts chapter 16, if you want to check that out. So, and also in Acts chapter 16, we see the beginnings and the planting of this New Testament church, the, the church in Philippi. And it's important to, to note that, that Paul is writing to a specific group of believers in a specific place. So he is writing to the saints who are at Philippi, who are in Philippi. So a little bit about Philippi. Philippi was a prominent city, the most prominent city at this time in the Roman province of Macedonia. So that was in what would be kind of modern-day Greece, the northern part of Greece, kind of the northern part of the Aegean Sea. That's where Philippi was, and, and it was what was called a Roman colony. And not, not every city within the Roman Empire at this time was considered a Roman colony. This was preserved for only certain cities, and it was a big deal, right? You got certain uh, benefits and tax breaks than other cities. All of your citizens were autonomous automatically Roman citizens, which Roman citizenship was a, was a big deal, was really important at this time. So all the residents of Philippi automatically had that just because this was a province. So uh, th- there's a lot going on in Philippi, but, but most important for us to recognize and remember throughout our times in, in Philippians is that there was a heavy Roman influence in Philippi. Because of their designation as a Roman colony, there was a heavy influence of Roman culture. Even though Greek culture at this time was, was prevalent amongst the known world, in those Roman colonies, man, the, the Roman culture went above uh, the Greek culture at this time. So it was, it was heavy influenced by Roman culture in this moment. 
So when, when Paul gets to Philippians, or in Philippi, when we see the beginnings of this church, it was really Holy Spirit directed. I mean, if you go back, and we even preached through Acts last year, so you can go back and listen to these sermons, but when we come to Acts chapter 16, we see that the planting of Philippi was Holy Spirit-led. When Paul is, is in Asia Minor at this time, in Acts chapter 16, this is his second missionary journey, he wants to go to other places. Like, he's not thinking about Philippi. He's not thinking about going across the sea to Greece. Like, that's not on his mind. He's wanting to go to other places. So he's trying to go to these other places, whether it's north or south in Asia Minor, and the Lord's just like, nope, don't go there. Nope, you're not going there. I'm blocking the way. And one night, Paul has this vision of a man in Macedonia saying, please come and help us. And, and Paul wakes up, he's like, man, that's the Holy Spirit. Like, I, we are supposed to go to Philippi. So they make their way to Philippi, and boom, they plant a church there, right? So Paul, we see this in Acts chapter 16. He meets this wonderful woman named Lydia, and she's a small business owner, prominent in the community. She puts her faith in Jesus, immediately opens up her home to have a church there. So the church is, is born in Philippi at Lydia's house, and, and, and Paul and Silas and Timothy, they're doing ministry, and people are putting their faith in Jesus, and the church is growing, and people start to be like, no, we don't like this, right? Like, we don't like this. Again, we're, we're Roman colony, right? We worship Rome and Caesar and all that. We don't want to talk about Jesus and other things. So what happens is Paul and Silas get roughed up by, the, by the, uh, the officials there, and they get thrown into jail. So they're in prison in Philippi just for preaching the gospel. And this crazy thing happens while they're in prison. That, that night they're in prison, they're singing psalms, right? I mean, that, that alone is like, whoa, how do you get to that point where you are beaten with, for no reason, and thrown in prison for no reason. And meanwhile, they're, they're Roman citizens. Like, this is against the law to do what they did to Paul and Silas. They'll, they'll realize that later. But they're completely just taken advantage of in this situation. And here they are singing praises to the Lord in prison. Like, that's just incredible, right? Like, that alone is a testimony. So they're singing praises, and all of a sudden, this earthquake happens. All the cells break open, and here's this poor Philippian jailer who's, like, just trying to do his job, and all of a sudden, this earthquake happens. He, everything breaks open. He's, I'm sure, assuming, like, all these prisoners just made a run for it. They're gone, and I'm going to be held responsible. So he's about to take his own life, and Paul's like, no, 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 no. We're still here. We're still here. And what we see happen is, is this jailer actually then brings them out of prison, brings them to his house. He puts his faith in Jesus. His whole family puts their faith in Jesus. And here they are, the new members of the church in Philippi, this former jailer, right? This former pagan jailer has now put his faith in Jesus. So there's just this incredible God moment that was happening in Philippi with the birth of this church. But it was also like really hard, right? Like this didn't come easy. And walking through this difficulty, man, it really bound Paul and the Philippians together. And that, that I think, is why he has this deep affection, this deep friendship with the Philippians and with this specific church. And he loves these people. They are close friends. And that comes out in this letter, right? This is very much a, a letter written from one friend to another, right? Like, that's a lot of what we see in the book of Philippians here. So most scholars believe that, that Paul wrote this letter to Philippians while he was in prison in Rome. So we see, again, throughout the book of Acts, at the end of Paul's third missionary trip, he gets imprisoned in Jerusalem, then he gets shipped off to Caesarea, where he's there for a couple of years, and then he appeals to Rome, and he goes to Rome. Eventually, at the end of Acts, we see Paul in Rome under house arrest, uh, there doing ministry still, but, he, but he's basically in, in prison, right? He can't just go about and do whatever he wants to do. He's, he's in, in prison in, in Rome. So most people believe that Paul wrote the letter of Philippians during this time that he was in Rome 
in prison. So this would have taken place, you know, 60, 61, 62 AD, somewhere around then where he writes this letter. Now, now why, right? Let's, what were some key themes, what are some key reasons that we see in the book of Philippians as to why Paul did this? Well, one, we're going to find out that Paul wrote Philippians in part to thank the Philippians for their financial support of him in this really difficult moment, right? They, they, have, they have sacrificially given to take care of Paul and minister to him in a very tangible way. So, so part of why he's writing is to say thank you. And, and as Paul does, right, he hits several key themes and important stuff for the Philippians and by extension us today. So he talks a lot about joy and, and rejoicing in the Lord. That's why we're calling our series Finding Joys, because uh, we're going to see over and over again this idea of joy and rejoicing in the Lord no matter what's going on is a, is a key theme throughout the book of Philippians. He also writes about God's provision and finding contentment in him. He, he addresses unity amongst believers and calls believers to unity. He reminds them of, of the gospel, and he kind of lays the groundwork to, to warn the Philippian church about this, this idea of works-based salvation, which was starting to creep into the church at this time. He encourages them to continue in their obedience in Jesus, despite persecution and cultural pressure to compromise. He, he writes the importance of Jesus in, in all areas of our lives. And we're going to see as we walk through, even in these opening verses, in just two verses, Paul is going to make clear that everything is about Jesus. Man, he exalts Jesus all throughout this letter. And we're going to see that time and time again. And he addresses like so much more than that. And that's just, that's just a brief overview of what's in just these four little chapters in our New Testament. So that's why we're going to spend our time walking slowly through this. So I hope you'll journey with us, hang out with us, get ready to dig deep, and just take our time, and we're going to soak in the, the letter of Philippians. I'm not going to tell you how long this series is going to go, because I don't know. I don't know. We're just going to go. We're going to trust the Spirit. We're going to go where He leads, and we're going to dig deep, y'all. So get ready. I hope uh, you are excited. I know I am. So let, let's get, get back here to, uh, to Philippians. Again, verse 1, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to stop there for today. We're just going to talk and focus in on these first two verses, this, this opening greeting from Paul. And in this greeting, even in these, these two verses, these two little verses, man, it is such packed with, with, with truth. And Paul is really teaching the Philippians, and by extension us today, a lot in even these two verses. So with these two verses, I, wanna, I want us to look at three things that Paul tells us about being a believer in Jesus. Three things that he teaches us here about what it means and what it looks like to follow Jesus and live for him. And what we're going to see is that, man, it is, it is all centered around Jesus. It is all about Jesus. So look, we've, got, we've got two verses here, like 30-something words, and three times Jesus is mentioned by name. Three times. Three times. And specifically, he says, Christ Jesus. And then at the end, he says, Lord Jesus Christ. Like, we're going to talk about why those words are important. But we see here right away, what we should notice from these three, uh, from these just two verses is, man, Jesus is front and center. This is all about Jesus. And again, this really sets the tone for the entire letter. Because the entire letter, everything, and we know this, right? Everything is about Jesus. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? Man, it, it, it's all about Jesus, right? And that makes sense, right? Like, of course, that was, that's what it would be. So Paul is, is making a point here, even in these two opening verses, that, that everything is centered 
around Jesus. Everything is about Jesus. Everything comes from Jesus. We should be focused on Jesus. So, so specifically, what, what are three things that we can learn about following Jesus from these two verses? Well, one, first thing we see, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. One, we are servants of Jesus. First thing Paul mentions is that we are servants of Jesus. We're servants of Jesus. Look again at how verse one starts out. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus. Servants of Jesus. Now that word for servants is the Greek word doulos. Doulos. And it's a word that, depending on your translation, could be translated servant, like here. It could be translated uh, bond servant, bond slave, or, or slave. And that's really what the word means. The word means slave. That, that's the word that was used to talk about a slave at this time. So Paul just said here that he is a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, slavery at this time wasn't as horrific as what we see with chattel slavery here in the Americas. It wasn't as horrific as that. But look, this is not some glorious life. It wasn't like, oh, slavery wasn't as bad as it, as it was here, but it, but it was great then. No, it wasn't great. No, a slave is still a slave. You still had zero rights, zero freedom, zero financial dependency. Like you had nothing to call your own. This was the, the lowest part of society at this time. Nobody woke up one day and was like, you know what I want to do today? I want to become a doulos. I want to become a slave. How do I do that? Where's the application? Right? Like nobody did that. Nobody did that. You entered into slavery due to like financial hardships or being taken advantage of and oppressed because you were maybe a widow or an orphan or uh, an immigrant at that time. Like, it was not good. It was not a good place to be, right? This is not what anybody aspired to. And yet, here Paul is, is using that term and saying, this is who I am. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, why would he do that? Why would he use that term? Why would he identify himself as a servant? And, and why are we called to do the same? Let's spend some time talking about that. So being a slave or, or a servant to Jesus means, that at a base level, it means that we belong to him. It means that we belong to him. We are his. We are not our own. When the Bible talks about our salvation, we put our faith in Jesus, it, it talks about it in, in terms of, of being redeemed or being, being bought for a price. That, that we, when we put our faith in Jesus, we are redeemed. And this idea of redemption means that, that you were buying somebody's freedom, essentially. So maybe you had a friend or a family member who was enslaved or in servanthood, and they had no way of getting out. Well, you, as a person maybe who had some money, you, you were able to purchase their freedom. You bought their freedom. You set them free. And it's like, hey, go about your life. You're, you're good now. You don't have to worry about this life anymore. You're free. That, that's what the Bible speaks of when it talks about our salvation, that we are redeemed that we are, are bought back by Jesus. And, and the price for that, the price for our salvation, was Jesus' life. Jesus gave his life on the cross so that he could save us. This is how 1 Peter 1 puts it. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19 says, For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. So when Jesus saves us, the price for our salvation, the debt that had to be paid, was Jesus' life. He gave his life for ours. And in so doing, he, he bought our freedom. He redeemed us. He saved us with his life. So... Uh, 
when, when Jesus saves us, when he buys us back, and this is where we kind of have to reconcile, okay, so we're set free in Christ, but then we're also servants and slaves of Jesus. How does that work? What's going on here? Well, Jesus doesn't save us from one form of oppression and puts us into another. Like, that's not what's going on here. When Jesus saves us, he brings us into true freedom, and living for him and being his servant and being a slave is where true freedom and true life is found. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 17. He says, But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. And having been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. Verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free with regard to righteousness. So what fruit was produced then from the things that you are now ashamed of? The outcome of those things is death. But now, since you have been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification. The outcome is eternal life. So that's the designation that we need to remember. See, Paul says here that that we're all slaves to something. Every single one of us is a slave to something. Whether we agree or admit that or not, we are enslaved to something. Now, for those of us in here who who maybe, or those of our lives who haven't put our faith in Jesus, who are not believers, Paul makes it very clear that those who are not in Christ, those who have not put their faith in Jesus, are slaves to their sin. They're enslaved to their sin, meaning that they live and pursue and chase after their sin. And that's how we are before Jesus saves us, right? Like that is our life outside of Christ. We are slaves to sin. And Paul says here, look, you weren't concerned about righteousness at that time, but what was the outcome of your life? What were you building up? What were you gaining? He says death. Death is the outcome. Death is the fruit of being slaves to sin. So he says, sure, maybe you weren't concerned about righteousness or moral living or anything else but yourself, but guess where that is heading? Death and eternal separation from God forever. You are slaves to your sin, and we're heading to destruction. That's what our sins bring us. And now Paul says, when we put our faith in Jesus, no longer are we slaves to sin. Now we become slaves to Jesus, meaning no longer are we living for our sin. We are now living for Jesus. And Paul says the outcome of that is sanctification and eternal life. The outcome of that is being more and more like Jesus and having the promise of eternal life with him. See, Paul says that you were slaves to sin leading to death, and now when you put your faith in Jesus, you live for him, you commit to him, you become his slave, his servant, and that's where true life is found. That's where true freedom is found. Because it's not our sin anymore. It's not destruction that we're living for. Now we're living for Jesus, and in him is where true life is found. So when we talk about being a servant of Jesus, this is what we're talking about that he has set us free from sin so we don't have to live in destruction. Now we can live and pursue Jesus and have the true life that he alone can give us. So we live for him, right? We look at what Jesus has done for us and he gave his life for us and he sets us free and he gives us eternal life and our response to that should be, I'm living for you, Jesus. I'm gonna chase after you. I'm gonna pursue you. And that's what Paul is calling us to here in being Jesus' servant, being Jesus' slave. This is what we're talking about. So we respond by living for Jesus and following him in his way. So being a servant of Christ means that we're not autonomous. Right? means that we don't just get to go and do and be however we want to be. The New Testament never presents living for Jesus in that way. 
It never presents this idea of living for Jesus as just kind of like incorporating Jesus into your life when it's convenient, right? Well, you know, if I don't have anything better going on this week, sure, maybe I'll go to church. Yeah, maybe. We'll see. We'll see how I feel when I wake up. Oh, uh, you know, I, I would read my Bible, but I didn't, you know, I didn't do it this morning, and now I'm busy, and now I'm tired, and now I want to go to bed, so, I'll, you know, maybe tomorrow. I don't really want to serve. I don't really want to be generous. I don't, I don't really want like, we just kind of view Jesus sometimes as like, you know what, we, we're, Jesus is, is just a part of our lives, right? We're just kind of incorporating him into our lives whenever it's convenient. It's kind of like paying dues or like some, some fee to be a part of an organization or a club or, or something like that where you just, I, I just write a check once a year, but I don't have anything to do with, with that or those people. I don't really, you know, if I decide to do something, sure, but I'll just kind of give my check once a year and I'm still in the club. I'm still a part of the group, right? Because I, I paid my dues. So that, that's it. I don't have to do anything else apart from that. Like that, sometimes we think of Jesus in those terms. Like, I'll just kind of live for Jesus when it's convenient. I'll pray when it's convenient. I'll read my Bible when it's convenient. I'll go to church when it's convenient. If it works out for me, Jesus, if, if my plans and your plans line up, cool. But if they don't, I'm, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Sure, I'll consider what you say, Jesus, but I'm still going to do whatever I want to do. That's not what it means to follow Christ. That's not the picture of the New Testament that we see, right? That's, that's rejecting Jesus' gift to us in salvation, cool, thanks for saving me, Jesus. I'm still going to go do whatever I want to do. That's not salvation. That's not the pattern that we are called to. And that's still going to lead to destruction because in that you're telling us that you haven't really put your faith in Jesus. Following Jesus is not something that we do when it's convenient. It, it, Jesus is not just a part of our lives. He, he should be our lives. That's what it means to follow Jesus, giving him everything, living for him at all times. He is our life. That's what it means to be a servant of Jesus. And look, we'll get into this more as we go through Philippians, but, but we're servants of Jesus because he first serves us. See, here in this, this, this passage, Paul calls himself a doulos, and the only other time he uses that word in Philippians is in chapter 2, verse 7, where he says Jesus does the same thing, where Jesus becomes a doulos for us. So Jesus sets the example. He sets the pattern. He serves us by giving his life for ours. So we respond to that by being his servant, by living for him. That's the first thing about what it means to be a believer is, is we are his servant. We live for him. All right, let's keep going here. Number two. Number two, the next thing Paul says is that we are saints in Jesus. We are saints in Jesus. Look again at, at verse 1 here. Paul states that he is writing to all the saints in Christ who are in Philippi. All the saints in Christ Jesus. That, that word for saints can literally be translated holy ones. Holy ones. This is one of Paul's favorite ways of referring to believers. Is throughout all of his letters, he is constantly referring to believers as saints, as holy ones. And you might be like, well, you know, maybe, maybe those other people were, were holy, but Travis, I mean, like, I struggle sometimes. Like, I, I, I know I'm supposed to live a righteous life and, and live a holy life, but man, I, I struggle, I sin, I still do the things that I don't want to do. And, and Paul would say, yes, absolutely, we, we as believers still struggle with sin. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about you're a saint only if you live a perfect life. That's not what he's talking about. When Paul calls us saints, he's talking about more of a position in Christ than anything else. He's talking about more of our identity, who we are in Jesus, not necessarily our actions. Should that truth that we are holy in Christ impact our actions? Absolutely. Yes, 100%. It should. 
that should, that should be the motivation for us to live a righteous life, right? But Paul right here is talking about more of that positional holiness. The Bible uses this fancy word justification to talk about that, right? When we put our faith in Jesus, the Bible says that we are justified. We are no longer condemned. We are no longer held guilty and responsible for our sins, when we put our faith in Jesus, all of our sins are forgiven, and, and, and Jesus gives us his perfection, his righteousness, and now we are in this position of holiness before God. So when God looks at you and I, and yes, he sees all the struggles that we have had this week. Yes, he sees all the times that we have messed up and failed and sinned this week, and yet our position before him is one of a saint, is one of a holy one. Because that position before God, that righteousness, that holiness that we have before God— it wasn't ours. We didn't get to that on our own, right? In fact, we, we could never do that. Because sin has so tainted and corrupted and affected us, there is no point at any point in our lives where we could get to righteousness on our own, or we could do enough good things that he, God would look at Travis and go, well, Travis, you finally crossed over that line of you were pretty good, you were okay, and now you're holy. Now you're righteous. You've done enough good in your life to now you're holy and now you're righteous. Like that, that's not how it works. God's standard is perfection. Anybody perfect in here? Let me answer that for you. No, no. And not me, not you, nobody. We're, none of us are perfect. We can never get there on our own. That's what Jesus has done for us, is he's given us his perfection, his holiness, his righteousness. So that position before God never changes because it's not something that I earned on my own. That was done for me by Jesus. And his righteousness never goes away. So when Paul calls us holy ones, when he calls these believers holy ones and saints, that's what he's talking about. We are identified by God as holy ones, not because of who we are, not because of what we've done, but all because of Jesus. We are saints in Christ Jesus. And that leads us to another favorite phrase of Paul, that, that in Christ, in Christ. And he uses that phrase all the time. And in just those two words, it is packed with such beautiful truth. We are believers. We are saints who are in Christ. That, that, means, that means complete and total union with Jesus. That's what it means to be in Christ. Being in Christ refers to, to all the, the spiritual blessings that God promises to us. Being in Christ means that we have a full, complete relationship with God, with Jesus. Means that, that being in Christ means that, that we're saved, we're adopted, we're set free, we're forgiven, we're blessed, we're promised eternal life. Being in Christ means that, that through Jesus' work and through our faith in him, he's, he's brought us in. He's brought us in to unity with him, to closeness with him. He's brought us in to him. We have complete access. The Bible also says, this is crazy, the Bible also says that, that because we are in Christ, we are heirs with Christ. Means that everything that, that Jesus is and everything that Jesus has is given and promised to us. Y'all, that's crazy. When you think about that, that is wild that Jesus would do that. We are heirs with him. That's what it means to be in Christ. And all of these things that we're given are given to us in grace. It means that, that we didn't earn it, and therefore we can't lose it. We can't lose it. We have these spiritual blessings with us always because of Jesus, because we are in Christ. We are united with him in every way 
and at all times. So when Paul says that we are in Christ, that's what he's talking about. We are in Christ. We are holy ones. We are saints in Christ, with Christ, unified with Christ in every way that we see in Scripture. So Paul says that we are holy ones in Christ, and he also says that we are, we are saints in Christ, and he says that, that he's also writing to these people who are in Philippi. They're in Philippi. And that's important for us to, to know, that they are in Philippi. And I think it's important that that, that comes second. See, first Paul says that, that they're holy ones in Christ who are in Philippi. So first we're in Christ, second they're in Philippi. So it's important that Paul lists that second because the first thing, the most important thing about us, the most important way we can be identified is that we are in Christ. That's the most important thing about us. Being in Philippi for these believers, that's secondary. So Paul's doing something very specific here, that our physical location or the physical ways that we identify, that, that is secondary to being in Christ. And again, this is important for us to, to know and remember in the, the letter of Philippians. Because where they are is important to them. Being in Philippi was a big deal at this time, right? Remember, this is a Roman colony. Like, this, this is a big deal. Being a Roman citizen, having uh, Roman colony status, like, that's important. That's a big deal to these people. So being in Philippi, you would think, like, that, no, that's, that's what's important. Being identified as somebody who is in Philippi, that matters. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. No, what matters most is that you're in Christ. Being in Philippi is, is secondary. So remember, like we said, Roman influence is, is heavy in Philippi. And with that, with the heavy Roman influence, came Roman worship. And at this time in history, what we see, what Roman worship was really about, sure, they had a bunch of those gods, just like Greek mythology, Roman mythology, very connect, very similar. But what was happening at this time, the most primary way that Romans worshipped, was they worshipped Caesar. They worshipped whoever, whatever emperor was in charge. And by this point in time in history, the emperor was really looked at as a god, as, as, as a deity, right? Like they, they had this uh, godlike form. Like they were viewed as somebody to worship. And, and what, the, what the Romans would say about the emperor is that the emperor was Lord and Savior. More specifically, they would say that the emperor is Lord and Christ. And see what Paul has just done in these opening verses. They said, no, no, no. Caesar's not Lord and Christ. Jesus is Lord in Christ. Jesus is your Lord and Savior. You don't, you don't live for Rome. You don't live for Roman culture. You don't live for Roman influence. You don't live for the Caesar. You live for Jesus. You are in Christ. He is your Lord and Savior. That is who you follow. That is who you live for. That is what matters. Being in Philippi, that's secondary. That's secondary. So remembering that we are in Christ here and the order of how Paul does this is, is it helps our perspective. It helps our perspective. It helps us center Christ in our lives no matter what is going on. And that's what Paul's going to address all throughout the letter of Philippians. This is one of the most important things that we see in this letter is Paul wants us to get our eyes off of what's in front of us, off of what's going on in our lives at this moment, right here, right now, and all the many ways that, that things aren't working out, that things we wish for different. He's like, get your eyes off of that. That's not what matters most. What matters most is Jesus. What matters most is that you are in Christ. So it helps our perspective. That's what Paul's trying to do here. He's trying to get our eyes off of what's in front of us and fixed onto Jesus. 
And he's doing that right here in these opening verses. All right, so we see that we are servants of Jesus. We see that we are saints in Jesus. And the third thing that Paul teaches us here is that we receive grace and peace from Jesus. We receive grace and peace from Jesus. Looking at verse 2. Paul writes, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul speaks of two things here that he's, he's asking, praying, hoping essentially for the Philippians that they would have grace and peace or that they would better recognize the grace and peace in their lives is probably the more accurate way to put it. So what is he talking about here? What does he mean by grace and peace? Because we talk about those two things a lot. And then we especially we talk about them in terms of our salvation. So, so grace, let's start there. Grace is God's favor towards us, right? It's God's unmerited favor towards us, which means we didn't do anything to earn it, right? We're not given grace because we've earned grace. Then it wouldn't be grace, right? Then it would be merit-based salvation, essentially, and that, that's not what we see in Scripture. So we are given grace, and grace means that we are given what we don't deserve, what we have not earned. That's grace. That's God's grace, and salvation is all about God's grace, so is that what Paul's talking about here? Well, I think it's more than that. I think he goes beyond that because already, he's already called these people saints. He's already called them believers. They are, they, he's writing to these people as if they are Christians, which they are. They have put their faith in Jesus. They're living for Jesus. So he's already, you know, you guys have already received saving grace. You don't need more saving grace, right? We don't, God's grace and our salvation is sufficient. We don't need like, hey, God, you know, my sin's a lot, a lot worse than other people's. I need more of your grace. No, his grace is sufficient, right? His, his saving grace covers all of our sins. So he's talking more here about this, this everyday grace that God gives us, this, this ever-present, ever-with-us grace of God in every moment of our lives. And what Paul is asking here for the believers in Philippi, and by extension us here today, is that we would live in, that we would see, that we would recognize God's grace in our lives on a deeper level, on a more consistent level. So our desire here is that we should be able to grow in seeing and knowing God's grace deeper and deeper in our lives. That's what Paul's asking here. That should be our prayer today. And again, this, this goes to what Paul's point in Philippians is, is to get your eyes off of what's wrong in your life, right? Get your eyes off of what's in front of you, all the ways in which we face disappointment in life, in which we face frustrations in life. Things aren't going our way. Things have not worked out like we planned. We're frustrated, we're disappointed, we're angry with how things have played out. Maybe you're walking through a really difficult season right now, which we all face in some degree or another. Man, I think we just open it up, man. We could give story after story of the ways we are experiencing the brokenness of this world. Some of you in some really heavy and big ways that maybe some of others in here would never really understand. So when we, when we talk about seeing God's grace in the midst of whatever is going on in our lives, it's not, it's not a, just a downplaying of what's going on. Like that, that's where I'm tempted to go, right? You talk to me, hey, Travis, how's life going? Everything's fine, right? Like, it's all good. Well, hey, you told me that this was really bad. Oh, it's not that bad. Like, what I do is I, I downplay. I downplay, which is really just a form of, of fooling myself as what I'm really, it's not, it's a way of, of not dealing with what I'm actually walking through in my emotions. Like, it's not healthy, right? That's not a good thing to downplay what we're experiencing. That's not what I'm talking about when we say we need to see God's grace beyond our circumstances. It's not downplaying what we're walking through. 
It's not downplaying the pain and the hardships and the difficulty of life. It's, it's recognizing that we're going through difficulty and still seeing God's grace in the midst of that. That's what it means to walk in God's grace more and more each day, to see God's grace in deeper and deeper ways each day. I think it's helpful in helping me think through this. There's, there's a biblical word that's very similar to grace, and that's gratitude. That's gratitude. I think one of the biggest ways that, that I'll just speak for me, that, that I can grow in seeing God's grace in my life more and more is being grateful. Finding, finding gratitude in Jesus despite my circumstances, despite the hardships and the difficulty and whatever is not working out in my life that I'm frustrated or disappointed by, still seeing God's hand at work, God's blessing at work in my life. Because look, believer, here's the truth. You might be walking through the darkest valley that you have ever been in. But two promises from scripture should help us find gratitude even in those moments. One is that Jesus is always with us that he never abandons us, that he is always right there with us, especially in the valleys. And two, believer, that we have eternal life promised to us, that this right here, this right now, this life, this world, this is the closest to hell that we will ever get. We have eternal life promised to us that we can look forward to. So I think growing in grace is growing in gratitude, growing in being thankful and grateful to God no matter what our circumstances are. Again, not downplaying the pain and the difficulty and the hardships, but still being grateful and seeing God's hand at work even in those moments. So Paul asks for grace. Second, Paul asks for peace. And peace is another common phrase used this time, especially in the Jewish Hebrew culture at this day. Peace is a common word used throughout our Old Testament. So what's he talking about here? What we see in scripture is that peace is the outcome of God's grace, right? Even in our salvation, we are given God's grace and salvation, and therefore we now have peace with God. We're no longer sinners. We're no longer enemies with God. We now have peace with God. Ephesians 2 talks about this. So again, is Paul looking at just that aspect of peace, or is he looking at more than that? I think he's looking at more than that, again, because these believers in Philippi, they already have peace with God in that sense. They've already put their faith in Jesus. They already have saving grace and saving peace. So what is he, what again is he talking about? I think it's the same with grace. Paul is asking for these believers and for us today to experience and see God's peace in our lives more and more every day. He wants us to have peace again throughout whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. Whatever's going on in life, whatever troubles, temptations, cultural pressure or persecution that we are facing or may face, Jesus can provide us with peace. No matter the ways that we're feeling the weight of this broken world, Jesus can offer us peace. And like, that's the thing, man, that kind of peace, that kind of tranquility in our hearts and our souls that we long for, that man, is just kind of like a breath of fresh air when we experience it, that only comes from Jesus. That only comes from him. So how can we grow in, in seeing God's peace? Well, again, I, I think for me at least, one of the ways that we can grow in seeing and, and experience and walking in the peace of God, no matter what we're walking through, is to constantly be reminded of the truth that Jesus is all-powerful and in control of all things at all times. If we want to experience the, the supernatural peace that only comes from Jesus, no matter what we're walking through, 
We need to remember in those times of difficulty, in those times of frustration and disappointment, that, that our God is in control and that our God is a good God that loves us and is always working things out for our good and for his glory. See, here's what happens is, is we see, hear this truth and we say, yeah, sure, God is in control. Yeah, Travis, I, I, sure, God's sovereign, God's in control. But again, how often do we live our lives like that's not true? How often do we live our lives like I'm in control? That this is, you know, I, I, I can control my life. I can control my circumstances. I can control my kids. I can control what happens at work. Like I can control all of these things, right? We live with this false mindset that we are in control. And here's where the problem happens. We're not in control. So what happens is we think we're in control and, and we realize we face the circumstances that remind us that we are not in control. But here's the problem. We've forgotten that God is in control. So we forget about the truth that God is in control, that he's sovereign, that he's got everything in his hands, and we live as though we're in control, and then we realize, oh wait, I'm not in control, but I've forgotten that God is in control, and now I'm spinning out. Now I'm losing my mind. Now I'm like, I'm freaking out, and I'm frustrated, and I'm, I'm really scared, or I'm fearful, or whatever it is, right? Like, oh man, the promotion, didn't, I didn't get that. The boss gave it to somebody else. Ah, I can't believe this. Oh, my kids are acting crazy and not doing what I asked them to do, and running around Target like they're crazy people. What's going on? I've lost all control. What has happened? Oh, I've hit traffic on the way home. Lord, why have you forsaken me? So we spin out because we've forgotten that God is in control. And now, man, we are a long ways away from peace. We got no peace in our lives. But if we want to truly live in the peace that Jesus promises us, we need to remember the truth that he is in control at all times. There's this powerful story in the Gospels that, that I think illustrates this, and it, it comes in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. It says this, On that day when evening had come, he, that's Jesus, told them, that's his disciples, he told them, let's cross over to the other side of the sea. So they left the crowd and took him along since he was in the boat, and other boats were with him. Verse 37, a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking over the boat so that the boat was already being swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion. So they woke him up and said, teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? Okay, so just try to picture this. These guys, who some of them professional fishermen, grew up on the water, think they're about to die. Like this is not some a little bit of wind, a little bit of rain. No, this was a horrible storm. Horrible storm. And they all thought they were dead. And here's Jesus just sleeping in the bottom of the boat. I don't, how is that possible, right? I would have been over the side throwing up by this point. But like, what is going on? So Jesus is sound asleep, and these disciples, they are losing their minds. They are spinning out. They think for sure they're about to die, and here's Jesus just sleeping away. So they go and wake up. They're like, Jesus, don't you care? So Jesus wakes up. He gets up. He rebukes the wind and said to the sea, silence, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And then he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked one another, who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. So there's this horrible storm. Everybody thinks they're about to die. Jesus wakes up, gives himself a yawn and a stretch and says, hey, hey, stop. And just like that, it's done. The storm is over. The sea calms. The wind and the storm is gone. And he looks at his disciple and he's like, what were y'all so scared of? Now, me reading this, I'm like, what do you mean what are they afraid of? 
Jesus, come on, man. Like, you should be a little nicer. You should be like, I understand where they're coming from here, right? Like, why are you rebuking them? Here's why. It's because they forgot who Jesus was. They forgot that he is the all-powerful God who can stop any storm at any moment, anytime he wants to, that he's got them. And look, what, what Jesus does here is he rebukes them for not having faith in the storm. He rebukes them for forgetting who he was in the midst of their difficult season, of the pain and the hardship that they're walking through. I think we can all relate to that. I think we can all relate to to what Jesus is teaching us here. Is that when we're walking through the storms, when we're in the hardship of life, when we're in the pain and the disappointment and the frustration of life, Jesus has not left us. Jesus has not forgotten us. Jesus is is somehow not off of his throne. He is still all-powerful. He is still fully in control at all times. That's how we can have peace in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the pain, is remembering who our God is. And he has not left us. He will never leave us. He is always all-powerful. He is always in control. So from the opening words of this letter, Paul makes it clear by the way that he identifies us, identifies believers, the life that he calls us to live, the things that we receive from Jesus, that, that everything comes from and is all about Jesus. We're servants of Jesus because he first served us. We're holy ones in Jesus because he gives us his holiness. We are in Christ because he has brought us in. We receive grace because he is a gracious God. We receive peace because he is in full control at all times. Everything is about Jesus. Even in these opening verses, this opening green, Paul is reminding us that Jesus is the one we look to for all of our needs, for all of our desires. That he is the one that we can trust in the deepest and darkest and most painful moments of our lives. That there is always, always with Jesus, more and more grace. That his grace and his mercy and his peace never runs dry, never runs out. That everything we have is all about Jesus. He's the center of everything, church. It is all about Jesus. Everything we are, everything we need, everything we long for, it is all about Jesus. It all comes from Jesus. So in a minute, we're going to conclude our, our time today. And, and if you're new, what we, what we typically do is, is we end um, each sermon with a time of response, the time of worship, and, and especially a time of communion. So this is a time for those of us in here who have put our faith in Jesus to, to remember, to worship, and recognize our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I would encourage every believer in here that, that as I pray in a moment, as the band comes back up to lead us, I would encourage each one of you to, to spend some time just in prayer, just preparing your hearts. Maybe you're, you're reminding me, Jesus, I, I've been looking for, for peace in a whole bunch of different places other than you. I've been living my life as if I'm in charge and, and not you. I've been chasing after the things of this world, looking for the things that only you can provide instead of coming to you, Jesus. Maybe we're confronted with, with some of the ways that we've, we've gone a little sideways. And this is the beauty of the gospel, right? That, that Jesus is always right there with grace and love. 
ready to receive us in repentance with open arms, right? Like that's the beauty of the gospel. So maybe some of us in here mean just to spend some time just worshiping Jesus, just spending time with him, confessing, praying. Maybe you've just been reminded of, of what Jesus has done for us. And you just need to spend a moment just praising him for the salvation and the blessings that he gives us and the grace that he gives us. But believer in the room, as you are prepared and ready, you can go to either side over here. We have these tables set up with the communion and, and you take, you eat and you drink and you remember the salvation that Jesus alone provides. If you're here and you're not a believer, I wanna encourage you, let, let today be the day of your salvation. Let today be the day that you stop searching, you stop chasing, you stop living for yourself in this world and you put your faith in Jesus. All throughout scripture, we're reminded that, that when we live apart from Christ, that only leads to death and destruction and disappointment and pain and suffering for all of eternity. Jesus invites a different way. And not that when you put your faith in Jesus, all your problems somehow disappear, right? Like you ask any believer in here, that's not what happens. But again, there's this supernatural peace and comfort and love that invades our lives because of salvation that he, he alone provides. So if you're ready to, to leave behind the things of this world, if you're ready to stop living and chasing after this world, chasing after your sin, you want to turn to Jesus, I would encourage you, please come. I'll be hanging out in the back during this time and after service. I'd love to talk with you. Anybody here, if you have a friend here, you came with somebody, if you want to talk with them, like anybody here would love to talk with you about what it means to put your faith in Jesus. Put your faith in him today. Let today be the day of your salvation. If you want to know more about that, if you're like, man, I've never heard this, I want to talk more, like, please come find me. Let's, let's talk. Let's get coffee. Let's go lunch. Let's hang out. Let's just talk about Jesus, right? Continue with us. We're going to dig into to all of these things. If you're looking for joy, if you're looking for satisfaction in life, Paul's going to tell us very clearly where to find that and where that can only be found, and it's Jesus. So if you want to talk more about that, please come find me. I'll be available. Let me pray for us, and we'll step into this time of worship and communion. Jesus, we love you. Lord, we thank you for who you are and for all that you've done for us, Lord. We thank you for the grace and the peace that you, Lord, constantly give us, that you constantly make available to us, Jesus. Jesus, would you help us live in that grace and peace more and more every day? Would we see your hand at work in our lives in deeper ways? Lord, would we experience your supernatural peace and control in all things at all moments in deeper ways, Jesus? Lord, you lead us to be saints in you, servants of you, Lord. We thank you. We, we praise you, Lord. I, I pray over our time in this book, Lord, that you would teach us, you would grow us and mold us and make us more like you, Lord. That's what you do with Scripture. Your word does not uh, return void, Lord. It is, it is always profitable for righteousness, Lord. So would you teach us? Lord, we ask your hand of blessing as we walk through this book together. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. We, we lift high your name today. And we pray. Amen.